Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Spirit Seeker Hour. Spirit Seeker Hour is your chance to delve into the world of your inner spirit. The Spirit Seeker Hour is brought to you by Spirit Seeker Magazine. Go to www.spiritseeker.com to find out more. And now, here's Cindy Meyer. Hello and welcome. And as the introduction said, this is Cindy Meyer from Spirit Seeker Magazine. This magazine has been published for 20 years. We started out as a quarterly newsletter, then expanded into a bi-monthly magazine, and then in 2002 we went to a monthly magazine. And you can find us um, each and every month at www.spiritseeker.com. Um, our print magazine is distributed throughout the whole Midwest, and we also ship to conferences throughout the U.S., but our um most uh our newest and most youngest readership shall we say um is online because they're more green they're more environmentally environmentally friendly and we have been published online since 1998 so we have that following we also have a weekly email newsletter and if you would be kind enough to send us an email to info info at spiritseeker.com asking to be added to the email list we will let you know when the radio show is each week who the guests are um we will let you know when the new magazine is online we let you know of other mind body spirit events throughout the u.s okay so those are all of the announcements um but i'm going to repeat the email list because you do want to join that you'll get to hear about all kinds of great things we also do periodic drawings for books and cds um for our email newsletter subscribers so once again info at spiritseeker.com Okay, so from here on, we are going to be live with my guest to see, um, today, uh, Dr. Cassandra Viaton. And if I haven't pronounced it right, um, Dr. Cassandra, are you there? Okay. I am. It's wonderful okay. to be oh. here today. It's Cassandra okay. Viaton. Yeah. Oh, Viaton. Okay. All right. And um, I'm just going to read your bio and then we'll go into anything else you want to share because your bio is quite fascinating. So uh, Cassie is the president and CEO of the Institute of Noetic Sciences. She is a licensed clinical psychologist, the co-director of the Mind-Body Medicine Research Group um, at California Pacific Medical Center Research Institute, and co-president of the Institute for Spirituality and Psychology. Her research is focused on spirituality and health, development, and pilot testing of mindfulness-based approaches to cultivating emotional balance um, and factors, experiences, and practices involved in psycho-spiritual transformation to a more meaningful, compassionate, and service-oriented way of life. Her primary interest lies in how psychology, biology, and spirituality interact to affect experience and behavior. She received her Ph.D. in clinical psychology at the California Institute of Integral Studies, where her clinical training focused on the integration of Eastern philosophy and spirituality into psychotherapy. She has conducted workshops, groups, and individual psychotherapy with victims of trauma, uh, adolescents, adult, and pregnant uh, drug drug addicts, violent offenders, transgendered, and HIV positive individuals and adults seeking personal growth. So my goodness, Cassie, you have your hands in a lot of different things, and they all dovetail. So 
you can share how whatever I, I know today we're here to talk about the conference coming up um, with Noetic Sciences. And I, for the listeners that don't know what Noetic Sciences is, I, I would like to like touch on that because you know this is an organization that's been around for quite some time. So, so I'm turning it over to you, and you'll hear me every once in a while. <laughs> Sure. Well, um, it's a pleasure to be here. And um, yeah, the most active part of my bio that you just read, thank you, is that I am the president and CEO of the Institute of Noetic Sciences. And IONS, it was founded in 1973 by the Apollo 14 astronaut Edgar Mitchell, who was the sixth person to walk on the moon and is one of eight surviving individuals who have been further from our planet than any other human being in the history of humankind that we know of. And so he has a obviously very unique perspective on our planet and society. And um, in fact, I just got a chance to talk to Edgar for about an hour this morning. He's doing very well. He's about 85 now and he still lives near Cape Canaveral in Florida. And um, so on his way back to earth from his moonwalk, as he puts it, he was lucky enough to have the window seat and He's there in the space capsule looking out the window, and they have this rotation of the space capsule that they call barbecue mode because you can't have one side of the space capsule facing toward the sun for too long or else it'll burn. So he's rotating and seeing the earth and the sun and the moon and the stars and the earth and the sun and the moon and the stars. And um, one thing it's important to realize is that when you don't have the filter of Earth's atmosphere, the stars appear, you know, 10 times as bright and 10 times as numerous and so really floating in this star field. And he had an epiphany that kind of really um, changed his life. And it was a moment of uh, sort of like a direct download from the universe where he felt himself uh, completely interconnected with everything he saw, that the molecules that made up his body were the same as those that made up the stars and the earth and the sun and the moon and the space capsule. And, um, you know, when he came back to earth, he was kind of um, exploring what was that experience? What happened to me? And he spoke with a lot of um, scholars and uh, moved into religious studies and found out that this experience, which I guess in Sanskrit is called samadhi, is something that people have reported throughout millennia, um, even from here on Earth, either as a result of spiritual practice or as something that just struck them in their lives. And so that really changed his understanding of the nature of reality and human potential and what, what are we really, what are we here to do. And he also had this experience where um, when he was looking at the Earth from space, he could see that so much of the despair and sadness and suffering on the planet was caused not by things that are out of our control, but really as a result of limitations in our own human consciousness and an incomplete and flawed um, worldview or paradigm about how things work. And, you know, there are no boundaries between countries when you view the earth from space. And so, war and inequity of resources and fighting over resources and um, not taking care of everyone when we have the capacity to do that. Um, You know, all of these issues really come from uh, difficulty of humans in seeing, first of all, the nature, the true nature of reality, which is that we are all interdependent on this planet 
And as Edgar said this morning when I was talking to him, that we're learning that we are really just almost like a grain of sand on a beach. The universe is so unbelievably enormous and massive, and there are so many planets. And now we're learning so many planets that could potentially host life that our sort of very narrow viewpoint of being Earth-centric and human-centric doesn't really work anymore. And we're finding that that, worldview leads to an unsustainability both personally for people in their own health and well-being and meaning and purpose but also collectively on the planet because when you don't recognize your interconnectedness with the planet you are able to engage in behaviors that you feel like are having a negative effect all the way around the world but they really don't affect you when in fact once you really Uh, understand at a deep level our interdependence, you can't engage in behaviors that benefit you and harm others. Which, oh my gosh, I could come from so many different directions with this as you're talking. Um, There was a book written, I don't even remember the author, but it was called Cosmic Consciousness. Hmm. And it was written about all the different philosophers and existentialists, like when they had that moment where they're like, oh my gosh, everything is connected. And so they call called it cosmic consciousness, these cosmic moments like what you were describing um, for Edgar Mitchell where all of a sudden it's just, there's there's no time, it's all one. Right. If that makes sense. And so it's like Sir yeah. Francis Bacon and, um, you know, Thoreau, you know, uh, Emerson and Thoreau, different people who had reached that that moment just where, I don't even know how to explain it. And then when you were talking about the consciousness, like all the work that Dr. Masteramoto has done with, you know, we're primarily water, our world's water, and then you change the frequency of water in your body through your thoughts, and then that ripples out. That's the biology of of thoughts. And, and when I was, I don't know, in the early 80s, I read this book called The Science of Happiness, and they it, it was this little tiny book, but someone had studied the breath, the exhalation of people who are happy and what that looked like. And then they studied the exhalation of people who are angry, people who were, you know, sick. And it's like all of it's connected. All of our thoughts, um, the, the world is way bigger and smaller at the same time than any of us realized. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and we know for sure that our thoughts affect our own bodies. There's no question about that. And and even when I say that, um, we know that our thoughts affect our hormonal systems, our gene expression, our brain development, our brain function and structure, um, our heart, everything that we can, you know, our immunity. So we know that. Um, we have some good evidence to suggest that our thoughts affect other people Um, Not only when they're next to us, we know that there's a sort of contagion of happiness, a contagion of sadness, a contagion of ideas that can happen in groups. And the Institute of Noetic Sciences has gone one step further to use the tools of rigorous science to investigate this aspect of interconnectedness that we're talking about. And so we look at, is there any measurable... um, reality to this timeless, um, you know, the timeless moment that people have and then that feeling that if you've ever had the experience of someone 
being in trouble that you know at a distance and sensing it and calling them and finding out it was true or knowing who was on the phone when it rang, even though you hadn't heard from them for six months. There you know, so many different experiences where people feel connected at a distance. Is it possible that there's a fabric of reality that transcends time and space? And so spiritual traditions have been um, investigating this for quite a long time using subjective methods. What hadn't really happened very much is science investigating this aspect of reality. And that's partly because the reigning kind of thought is that you can't study those things. It's not possible. Those are in the domain of religion and spirituality, and they really shouldn't be studied by science because you might contaminate the objective aspect of science by introducing metaphysical concepts. But what we believe and understand at IONS is that just like we couldn't see electricity at one point, just like we couldn't see uh, germs causing disease at, at one point, just like we didn't really understand that there was capacity for wireless communications. And, of course, all three of those things are now ubiquitous in our world. There may be uh, there may be an aspect of reality that has to do with our awareness and our consciousness that not only is perceiving or acting as a... Um, filter for reality, but also influences it. Well, and the ramifications of this are so huge. You know, like the average, you know, how do I put this? You know, so many people think that when something is in the DNA, it's in the DNA and it's forevermore and you can't change it. And, you know, and and when the thoughts are that way, oftentimes that's how it works, you know, because the thought is so strong that, well, everyone in my family has such and such condition. And then mm-hmm. then you see other people who totally override that. And you're like, was that consciousness or was that what happened there? And, yeah. you know, I think more and more we're seeing scientific studies, spiritual aspect, that spirituality can override phys- the physical things. And most people still, they want proof of this. And yet... We've seen it through the ages. Yeah, yeah. And I would say, um, you know, this idea of overriding, it may even be that there's a dance between awareness or consciousness. And when I say the word consciousness, um, I don't just mean being awake. I mean intention, attention, beliefs, um, dreams, imagination, symbols, you know, all of these ways that we have this internal subjective experience, the way that you direct your attention or intention um, makes a difference. You know, we, we call, we say sometimes consciousness matters. It matters what you think, what you intend, what you believe. And that adds an essential element to every situation. So, If you think about a classroom where you're teaching information, it's not just the information that makes a difference. It's also the presence and intention of the teacher, of the students, and of the kind of field that's created between them. Or if you're in a healing encounter, it isn't only the drugs or the surgeries or other interventions that are um, physiological. It's also the beliefs and intentions of the person who's healing, of the person who is being healed, And that aspect of reality um, really hasn't been delved into as much as it could be by any means. I mean, we've barely begun to scratch the surface of what this subjective world 
means for our lives. And, you know, psychology has done it to a certain extent. Um, but what is really interesting is now physics is beginning to notice that there is apparently some role of consciousness, attention, observation, even in the physical world. And so that's really an exciting new frontier to be exploring and potentially very crucial for humanity moving forward. Well, and you know, I think now more than ever, we have, um, we have, you know, the internet has changed all of our lives. Let's, let's, you know, the way communication is shared, the way, um, but, but, you know, Greg Braden, um, I remember I've listened to him several times and seen him in person and I, I'll never forget, I think he calls it the, Oh, there's a name for it, but where um, someone in in uh, Australia and someone in Germany and someone in, say, Canada, all at the same time will come up with some scientific discovery. And it's mm-hmm. like, how do you explain that, you know? And what he talks mm-hmm. about is the fact that there's a whole thing with consciousness that when we're all connected, it's like the the I think what I think it was something to do with monkeys. Like the monkeys, it's communication. <laughs> it's like instantly like spread through the ether, sort of. Yeah, I yeah. I, I mean, there's I don't definitely know if I some that very well. Yeah, I mean, there was a popular right. book I think in the '70s called The Hundredth Monkey, which was yes, basically um, kind of observing that. Um, you know, monkeys who learned how to use tools in one continent, there was a very similar emergence of that capacity to use tools in another continent, even though there was no way that they could have physically been communicating or transmitting that information. And certainly I think um, all of the major advancements in human society, there were kind of simultaneous awakenings all over the world about, you know, the Renaissance, even the use of light in painting or the use of tools around the world. And, you know, you could say, okay, everybody's evolving at a similar rate, so that could happen at the same time, um, you know, coincidentally. But what we'd like to propose at IONS is that that kind of synchronicity or coincidence is worth investigating scientifically to see if it maybe goes beyond just a coincidence and has some other force of nature that is governing it one of the things that Edgar Mitchell said to me recently was that we've learned that the universe is made of matter and energy. Um, We've been taught that, but what we're learning is that the universe may be made of matter, energy, and consciousness. And it's this third realm of our own awareness and capacity for um, determining what perspective we want to view a situation from that can change things. And, You know, I want to be really clear that I'm not talking about sort of a magical um, change where if you just concentrate hard enough, then your sick child will will be better. Or if you just wish enough or visualize enough, you'll have a BMW. You know, this is not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is the idea that your intention makes a difference in how you perceive the world and what you do, how you respond to the world And it may even make a difference on its own in the world. And we just don't know that much about it yet. But there is some enticing evidence that physical systems can change when people's consciousness changes. And so it's really, it is a new frontier. And I believe that it's probably the, you know, if you think about the industrial age, the agricultural age, and then the industrial age and the age of information, 
now we're kind of looking at the age of connection. What is the nature of this connection that we subjectively sense but we don't know very much about? Right. Well, and you know... um, when you go back to meditation, you know, the the scientific studies, like the Harvard, um, the Herbert Benson response, rather, Herbert Benson response with the relaxation response in the, in the body from the mind calming down. And then, you know, this has been documented, and I, this is one of my favorite studies that we have, is from the um, transcendental meditation. Uh, there was a large group that went to Washington, D.C. They sat on the Washington, uh, D.C. White House lawn, and they meditated. I think it was like for two days. And what mm-hmm. they found, and they could, they, could, they could accurately measure this, is that crime dropped. It was like over 200 miles out. They went 50 miles and 75, 100, and they quantitatively correlated it with the fact that all of these TM meditators were focusing on peace. Mm, mm, yeah, and I mean this yeah. is like one of the first. It's one of the first. It's, well, you know that and the Herbert uh, Benson response. Um, you know the relaxation response. Those were some of the first studies that people were like, hmm, maybe there is a difference, you know. But then you know there have been books written on why do some people get well and and others die. Same conditions, mm-hmm. same diagnosis, same extent. But but consciousness has a lot to do with it. But not the Pollyanna kind of consciousness, what you were saying, like you wish something away or, you know, it's, there's, there's, that's what, with quantum physics, how do we, how, how can you deny some of the miracles that are being experienced through quantum physics, you know, and, yeah, you know, Matt. And Master Emoto, you know, I mean, studying the prisons of the water, you know, and the change in them. I mean, you know, with what the bleep do we know? I mean, that movie changed a lot of people's lives. Like, whoa, so I really can change my reality with my thinking. Mm, yes, you can. <laughs> but yeah, imagine yeah. all and of I us harnessing that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, and I think that um, those early studies were so important for opening people's minds to the possibility that, meditation is not just a self-improvement tool. It's something that might um, function as a force of nature. And we still don't know that much about it. You know, we we need to, I I think the message that I like to convey more than anything is that these things are worth investigating. And once we do find some things that we can trust, they're worth integrating immediately into our everyday lives and that there really doesn't need to be the extent of fear and um, skepticism uh, that would keep us from saying, okay, if a number of studies now have shown that meditation, not only the relaxation response, but mindfulness meditation where you're watching your breathing and your thoughts and your feelings um, has some pretty good evidence now showing that it changes the function of your brain to sort of a more resilient way of functioning and also the structure. You know, there have been some great studies now out of Harvard that are showing changes in the amount of gray matter and white matter in certain areas of the brain when one meditates. And the idea that just taking the time for some small period of time every day, 20 minutes to meditate can maybe optimize your your functioning is great and then there's a whole new um there's there's so much further we can go with that because for most people they're not meditating to change their brain structure they're meditating because 
for most people, they're starting because they're suffering in some way or because they see a possibility maybe in someone they met who seems to be shining and thriving and they say, wow, I want what you have. What are you doing? And they're like, well, you know, I've taken up this mindfulness practice. Um, There's more to it than just changing your heart rate or changing your immunity or changing your brain functioning. In fact, you could argue that those are in fact reflections of the larger change that's taking place. And I would call that a shift in worldview that, Um, We have a kids program called Worldview Explorations, and we've translated some of what we've learned in the now over 40 years of research at the Institute of Noetic Sciences and other people's research, showing that how you view things does change your behavior, your responses, and may even have an impact on other people in reality. And so one of the examples we use in that is if a kid is walking down a high school hallway and their worldview is, you know, the world is essentially a dangerous place. I'm not safe. I need to defend myself. People are kind of out to get me. And that worldview may have come from, as you said, their genetics, their upbringing, their media viewing, who knows where it came from. Well, if someone bumps into them hard in the hallway, they're going to be like, hey, what is your problem? You know, do you want to fight? You know, you want to take this outside kind of thing? Whereas someone who has a worldview that is more like, you know, everybody's pretty much doing their best and we're all kind of working together. The world is an essentially safe place. There are some anomalies, um, but, you know, I kind of feel a compassion for other people. They have the very same experience happen to them getting bumped into hard in the hallway and they might turn to the person and say, oh, are you okay? And so that, that example extends to adults. It extends to everyone um, because in that case, it's not like they changed the outside situation they changed their viewpoint of it and in a, in a strange way that does change the outside situation and it definitely changes what happens next mm-hmm. right and you you know with your research that you're doing um I would think, I mean, I know that the Transcendental Meditation Society, a lot of the local chapters closed, and they've been, um, and Gangaji, several other meditation groups are going into prisons now and Mm -hmm. working with, because our prisons are ridiculously overcrowded. It's, we have not come up with solutions, whereas the mindfulness that is being taught, would would you like to talk just a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think from a, from a bigger picture, I feel I've sometimes had a, um imagination that, you know, my great-grandchild someday in the future might be speaking to me when I'm older and saying, is it true that you used to put people in cages when they were desperate and couldn't eat and had to steal and felt out of control? And that idea that now we think that the only possibility for a person who's desperate enough to be a danger to themselves or others is to put them in a cage is barbaric. Um, So this idea is something that we've all accepted, but like other ideas, I would say like civil rights or women's rights or, you know, the dangers of smoking. I mean, there are many, many um, other kinds of things that collectively we've all changed our mind about. Now, does it solve Does it solve it completely? No. Then we need to enact actionable tools and solutions that people can use that are realistic and actually work. And 
so one of the ways that we frame the Institute of Noetic Sciences is that there are four things that have been the pillars of every major societal change in recent history. One is that we have a direct experience or one person or a few people make an observation and they say, wait a minute, I don't think that the way we're looking at this is accurate. I don't think it's correct. So you can think of the flat earth or, you know, all Galileo, all different aspects where somebody or a few people said, hey, there's something not right here. And, of course, at first, everyone says they're wrong and they're scared and they're worried about it. The second is that we obtain evidence or external confirmation for that, um, first of all, that the current worldview isn't working, and second, that there is potentially a, a new and improved worldview that would be more complete. And that's where science comes in, where you really have to, you can't just base it on subjective experience. You've got to say, look, the data show X, Y, Z, and this new model that I'm presenting actually offers a more complete and accurate solution. The third is that you give people tools and techniques and curricula and training so that they can apply that in their everyday lives. So if you don't give people those things, there's really not much they can do with the new understanding except feel frustrated or despairing, you know, that there's not a, a there's no, nothing they can do to change it. And the fourth is a community of support that over time there arises uh, groups of people all over the planet that say, look, we subscribe to this new way of understanding and we're going to make it happen and we're going to support each other in making it happen. And I think the major thing to remember there is even the new model has to be open to revision once again if there's new evidence. And so that's that's what we do at IONS. We provide people with venues and opportunities to have these direct experiences to find out for themselves. We don't we don't really have a, an agenda or a message that we're trying to evangelically get into the world. We say let's let's take a moment to explore your subjective experience and give you permission to talk about it with other people and not be considered crazy. And then we work on science. So we have seven scientists who are working in fields from neuroscience to physiology to physics to genetics, um, psychology and social science, and working to provide that scientific evidence for some of the experiences people are having. And then we also uh, provide tools and technologies and curricula for people to be able to include those in their everyday life, whether it's their personal life or healthcare, education, business, their professional life at a societal level. And fourth is this community of people who are awakening all over the world to these new possibilities and who are refusing to accept the boundaries that we've placed on our sense of possibility. Well, and some of your presenters are just fabulous. Barbara Marks Hubbard is one of my favorite visionary people. (laughs) I just, yeah, you know, she just has done a lot to like, um, you know, bring conscious awareness um, to to just like wake up. And guess what? You wake up and all these things are possible. And Don Miguel Ruiz, my goodness, I've experienced him several times and interviewed him. And, you know, when he was having his heart attack, I mean, he he just, you know, was like, I guess I actually he had a heart transplant. I think he had, he had some kind of major heart surgery. And, oh, I don't know um, that. Yeah, 
Yes, and he said, you know, his son Jose was there, and he's like, Jose, stop it. He was crying and going on, and he goes, stop mm. it. You were no use to me like that. He says, you know, he <laughs> says, you need to leave, and when you, when he says, I am here doing very important work right now, and he said, he said, you know that, that, even if I drop my physical body, I'm not gone. And he said, this is, he says, you're, you're forgetting all the basic teachings. So Jose left, and then he came back, and he says, okay, Father, I'm now ready. And his mm. father, you know, just was like, okay, you know, like here are some other teachings I want to pass on to you. And and then, of course, he made it through it. But it was like, mm. no, no, no. Like that, like right now, there's no time and energy to do all that. I mean, I mm. have this thing going on, and I need to, like, deal with it. And, you know, and, I mean, he has, you know, I mean, he and, and you probably know this, Tom McGovern Ruiz was a, a, a physician. He was a doctor. Mm-hmm. And then he, um, his family started handing the Toltec teachings to him, and he left traditional medicine. But of course, that's all still in there, you know, that scientific understanding of the mind and the body. And then, um, so to me, I'm just, uh, I thought, what an interesting group you have brought together. And then, Marion Williamson. I mean, what can I say? <laughs> she just, she just. Um, you know, a lot of people were upset with her when she started the weight loss thing, you know, but she under she was trying to explain that, you know, physical weight is so much more than just what you're eating. It's consciousness and, and what you're thinking is affecting the way your body's working. And, um, you know, I mean, she's just, I don't know. I just love Marion Williamson. No matter what, you always, she gives you a different perspective. And, um and I, you know, some of the other or other presenters, um, you probably know them much better than me. I know some of them. Um, what what will you be presenting at the conference, Cassie? Well, I mean, I think that the conference, um, and this is happening in Chicago or in Oak Brook, Illinois, near Chicago, on July twenty second through twenty sixth, and it's our sixteenth international conference of Ion. And it's about 500 people who will be coming together to celebrate the awakening that's happening all over the world to um, advance this idea that you can use science to investigate these topics without contaminating science or, you know, sending us off into some superstitious realm. So sometimes I like to say it's kind of like the thinking person's, you know, thinking person's religion or spirituality or new age and then um, everyone who attends is going to encounter several people who are teaching evidence-based tools and curricula and trainings and tips and ways that people can immediately um, implement some of this information in their lives because when you hear it, it can either sound very sort of um, ethereal or on the scientific end, it can sound sort of inaccessible because it's so complicated. And so we're really um, dedicated to translating what we've learned into things that people can use in their lives. And the most important part of the conference is really the community where you come together with like-minded people, um, not so like-minded that it seems like a you know groupthink or a cult, but it's a, actually community of explorers and investigators and people who are curious and excited about new possibilities and it's always wonderful to hear from someone who comes from an area of the country or the world where they don't have a lot of support by their friends or family or colleagues you know people think they're kind of um out there (laughs) 
And they come right. here and they just get a lot of people who are really smart and really grounded and very engaged and hugely supportive of whatever they're trying to make happen in their neighborhood or their community or their school or their own personal work. And um, so we call the the theme is the science of being, the spirit of community. And if you've never been to one, it's definitely kind of a once-in-a-lifetime experience. It's a wonderful thing. And um, IONS, you know, really focuses on a few different things in terms of the um, exploration. One is basic science, where we're going to have a number of our scientists and other scientists who are investigating these domains in the laboratory and in, like I said, the fields of neuroscience and genetics and physics and psychology and social science, biology, and that's always really fun to sort of geek out with those people. Um, and then we'll have a lot of educators and healers and psychologists and, you know, uh, medical people who say, okay, this is how I'm doing this in the world, and it works, and this is how you might consider moving it into your life, some trainings for people who are working as educators for our Worldview Explorations Program with youth and people who are working with people who are aging, and then um, several people who are working on community and transformation and how do you take action in the world and move out of that place of feeling maybe um, a little bit of deer in the headlights or paralysis because it seems so big to address, you know, a, a whole paradigm. Um, most of the people who attend the conference, I think, end up feeling renewed and educated and inspired and they leave with things that they really want to do and know how to do that they didn't have before. Well, and I'm going to actually, um, in case you're joining us, join us a little bit later, um, you're hearing Dr. Cassie Beaton um, talking about the upcoming Noetic Sciences Conference, the Science of Being, the Spirit of Community, um, on July 26th, 22nd through 26th in Oldbrook, Illinois. And the founder of um, the Institute of Noetic Sciences is Edgar Mitchell. And I'm just going to, um, he was an, he's one of the few remaining original Apollo astronauts who actually went to the moon and um, and coming back, he had this experience. I'm actually going to read it. He says, um, hurling earthward at several miles per second, I had time to relax in the weightlessness and contemplate that that blue jewel-like home planet suspended in the velvety blackness from which we had come. What I saw out the window was all I had ever known, all that I once thought had ever been and ever would be. It was all there suspended in the cosmos in that fragile little sphere. The restraints and boundaries of flesh and bone fell away. I not only saw the connectedness, I felt it. And then he says, um, whereas mystics have believed the more startling insights to be a supernatural phenomenon, I was reasonably sure they were entirely natural, even normal. Perhaps emergent characteristics of ongoing evolution. Everyone experiences that potent ethereal sense of aha, and for a brief moment, they glimpse the larger structure of a problem in their life, resolve a conflict in the thinking, or glimpse the grand pattern of the universe itself. And then he says, and I just love this, Edgar Mitchell's direct experience transformed his life and inspired him to found um, IONS. As he puts it now, what the Apollo program did for outer space, IONS is doing for inner space. I just love that. 
It's so inspiring. Yeah, I mean, it's really wonderful to still have a, a strong connection with Edgar. He's um, 100% behind us and really proud of what has been done at IONS over the last 40 or so years. And, you know, you mentioned her Benson study at Harvard. IONS funded the first studies of her Benson and the relaxation response and some of the first visits of the Dalai Lama to the U.S. and Ben was a real pioneer in um, the mind-body healing movement in the 80s and 90s. And so what IONS really is doing is trying to stay on the cutting edge or the the forward um, thinking movement of whatever's happening in this realm. And I really love that metaphor of the Apollo program for outer space and, you know, the Apollo program for inner space. We need to have the same kind of dedication and creativity and ingenuity and resources applied to the scientific investigation of the inner world and then the technological development and um, ways that people can achieve these seemingly impossible goals like landing on the moon. You know, one of the things to really consider is that the amount of computing power that took the Apollo astronauts to the moon is less than the computing power that is in your smartphone in your pocket right now. So Isn't if you can amazing? imagine coming onto the top of a rocket and blasting off to space with less than the computing power of your smartphone, that's pretty wild. So it's, you really can. It's more than amazing. When we all come together, we can do things that we really don't think are possible. And, you know, you probably remember Kennedy saying, you know, we're going to put a man on the moon in 10 years. And everyone was like, how is that ever going to happen? And it did. Oh, my father, um, actually my stepfather, but he um, adopted and raised me, was part of the Apollo program from the start. And he was, you know, he worked in the white room at McDonnell Douglas. And so, you know, they mm. wore all white. And he was never allowed to talk about what he did at work. It was just one of those mm. things. And um, But yet we'd always get these hand-signed photos from the astronauts. And uh-huh. one year we knew they were working with the Japanese because he came home with this um, for Christmas a sake, sake, mm. you know the the alcohol sake and little and we're like what what are you doing with that and he says you know I can't talk about that but but you know <laughs> right. we just kind of grew up peripherally knowing that he worked with security and all these badges and you know and but he worked with you know mm. the astronauts and I mean it's it is amazing how much um, technology has advanced and yet we were able at that time to put a man on the moon. It's it's really, to me, it's just pretty awesome on so many levels. And, um, and you know, to have this many people together with a conference, what I know personally from attending these conferences is there's the conference, but then there's everything that happens outside the classes. It's like, you know, with meeting different people and people you've heard about and, and the connections that happen over dinner or over you know, a break at the person sitting mm-hmm. next to you at a conference like this, you just, you, it's just a, it's an overall experience. And um, I just want to mention that there is a pre-conference that is taking place on Wednesday, July 22nd and Thursday, July 23rd. And then the main, um, you, the main conference then starts and you can, um, on the website, which is, um, I have it right here. Let me move my mouse over. It is mm-hmm. um, noetic.org, which is N-O-E-T-I-C.org, and then the conference information is there. There's all that you like. If you can only attend part of it, you can do that. If you attend the whole thing, um, of course, you you know you'll get a better price. But um, 
you know, Cassie, I, do you want to do you want to talk about the Green Heart um, organization? Oh yeah, or? that'd be great. Well, okay. what's wonderful okay. for us is number one, coming to the Midwest is um, just a pleasure. We really haven't been there in a long time, and there are so many people in the Midwest who are just so grateful. <laughs> you know, they're so happy that we're coming out there and we're doing an event there because there isn't quite as much. Um, of a candy store of all of these kinds of things as there is in the San Francisco Bay Area or, you know, maybe New York. And so we, we're we really happy to be in Chicago. And part of why we're there is because we're collaborating with the Greenheart organization. And they are this amazing group in Chicago who um, their main area of business has been bringing exchange students um, to, you know, 47 different countries in the world, about 10,000 students a year, And what they were noticing is, you know, these students have these transformative experiences, but they didn't have as much training and their host families didn't have as much training in how to navigate a completely different worldview and how to really capitalize on this opportunity to be immersed in people who have very different perspectives but are very much the same as you at the same time. So they've been interested in and formed something called Greenheart Transforms, which is now working with all of these different organizations, including Barbara Marks Hubbard and all of these things, to elevate human consciousness by bringing organizations together. And we're really happy to have them as co-sponsors. And um, their uh, founder, uh, Emmanuel Kunselman, will be one of the co-MCs of the conference. And that's great. We're also collaborating with the Theosophical Society in Chicago, which has been it's an international organization, but their U.S. home is in Chicago. And, of course, they've been on the scene since long before almost anyone, um, I think starting in about 1885 or something. And so Tim Boyd, their president, will be there at the conference um, speaking. And I'll be speaking at their conference the weekend before out there in Chicago. So um, now, now what, what is that, that group? Which, which which the Theosophical Society. Oh, Theosophical yes, yes, yes. Okay. Society. Yeah, I mean, almost yeah. all of the topics that we just discussed in this call, if you were to do a historical analysis of how it started being talked about in the U.S., you would probably trace it back to the Theosophical Society hosted a meeting or, you know, the Theosophical Society had a salon or something like that. And so they, you know, they don't do science at their institute, but they support the scientific exploration And they especially support the sort of uh, perennial philosophy that exists uh, across all spiritual and religious traditions that in some ways you could say is pointing toward a similar truth of this thing that we've been talking about, this uh, aspect of human existence that is not bound by space and time, that seems to have a sort of um, Indra's net or kind of a a web of interconnection uh, around the planet and across millennia and that it's all trying to get us to pay attention to something that is as important as the outer world. So that's really the base, you know, the very basic thing I could say about the Institute of Noetic Sciences is the idea that the inner world is as important as the outer world and deserves just as much exploration And I guess the other thing would be to say that um, so much of our society and our resources and energy have gone toward um, a fear-based model where we've spent 
billions of dollars every year on war and, uh, you know, destruction and um, those kinds of things. And if we just spend a fraction of that toward how we can create peace, how we can create well-being and thriving, how we can learn more about our connections, um, I think we'd go a long way toward making everyone's life better. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, when you, you – this, this conference has over 44 presenters. And, um, you know, the, the basic dialogue will be on the nature of consciousness, social action, expanding worldviews, um, the latest in noetic sciences, and the future of consciousness research and more. And, you know, when you imagine all of these people coming together for this conference and then the ripple effect of everyone um, personally being – you know, transformed and shifted through consciousness and then taking that out into the world wherever they go. And, you know, mindfulness is one of the the fastest growing, um, it's just you hear it everywhere. And uh, Senator Tim Ryan has taken it into the Senate now. They are doing mindfulness um, exercises before they are starting some of the Senate sessions. Now, granted, they've tried to um, bring in different um, spiritual aspects, and some people have just, like, you know, stood up and actually walked out, which is just pretty rude. Mm-hmm. But um, but they're trying all these different, you know, different forms of prayer and different forms of trying to unite um, all of us because we are all connected. But, you know, it's just it's wonderful to have, like, what you're doing, though, with this conference and um, – and I just did not realize how Edgar Mitchell was, was – I just didn't know the whole history until this interview. So I really am grateful um, that you have explained it so so well. Sure, yeah. Yeah, I think that um, one of the things you mentioned in Edgar's quote about his experience was that, um, you know, many people think that these phenomena are supernatural. And I do fully understand the desire to keep religion and – kind of uh, codified spirituality out of politics and, you know, this is a good idea. And at the same time, many of these experiences are not, you you don't even have to use the word spiritual. They are essential human capacities. And, you know, we talk about the sixth sense being intuition. And in some ways it's really the first sense is that instinctual knowledge, the gut feelings or um, these things that you know to be true within yourself and then you maybe encounter external things that say, no, 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 let's the other way you feel wrong about it the whole time you're doing it. And then it, you know, results in something that's not helpful. That We're not saying that that kind of um, intuition or knowing should completely dominate. What we're saying is that we should bring together the left brain and the right brain, the heart and the mind, the science and the spirit that, it's really at the nexus of those two that we can find solutions that will help us. And so, you know, I think it's really important to say it doesn't need to be religious or spiritual or superstitious or mystical or metaphysical. Um, If you really get people in a situation where they feel safe, almost every single person has had some experience of an inner knowing that they couldn't necessarily explain. And many people... Um, you know, it's been the basis of some of our greatest social movements and greatest scientific discoveries. And so we're really talking about making room for that. 
Okay, and I just want to um, mention again, we have a few more minutes, but I want to mention that um, the website, if you want to go directly to the conference, is noetic.org forward slash conference 2015, and then um, a forward slash again. And then you can also contact Jenny Matthews at 800 583 I'll repeat that, 800 583 3063. You can also email um, Jenny at conference at noetic.org. And the other beautiful thing um, that the, this conference offers is there are definitely volunteer positions open. I don't know if they're all filled, but there are partial scholarships available. So if, if the financial part is um, is making it to where you can't come, you you are able to apply for a partial scholarship, which, I mean, how wonderful is that? Yeah, yeah. And I think another really fun thing to mention about the conference is that some of the speakers that we have that are not as well-known are so fascinating. So Louis Ferrante is one of our speakers, and he is someone who was in the mafia, you know, in the mob, and he was in prison, and he had a transformative experience that changed his life, and now he's really uh, promoting all of these ideas out in the world. He's fascinating. Um, Drew Dellinger is a poet who has been a Martin Luther King scholar and also a scholar of this um, view of the Earth from space. And when it first appeared, when everyone on the planet saw the Earth from space, either in a photograph or in a video, it really changed the collective human psyche. And so he talks about how, as you were saying at the beginning of the call, you know, Thoreau and all these people had these transcendental experiences. What a lot of people don't know is that Martin Luther King also functioned from that um, that realization. And he talks about all of humanity being tied in a mutual garment of destiny and that we can't really be free unless everyone is free. And I can't be in a place of thriving unless all people are. And so a, a lot of what he did was based on this experience of interconnection as well. So Drew will be talking about that. And so a lot of our speakers that maybe people hadn't heard so much of before are really um, interesting people to encounter as well. Well, and Dean Radin looks quite interesting. Well, Dean um, is fabulous. You know, I get to work yeah. with him every day and, you know, he's just a pioneer in the study of distant mental interactions and precognition and mind-matter interactions. And he's just someone who carries with him so much integrity around the study of these topics and scientific rigor and also a, a, an amazing sense of humor and just a wonderful person. And, yeah, so he's he's worth seeing. Well, and Master Ming Tong you. I don't know if I said it correctly, but I am a big believer in Qigong. My my uh, first teacher was in his 70s when he taught me, and you know, I'll never forget, he said he was not allowed in the operating room at University of Michigan, but they people had heard so much about him, they're like, we want to know what you do. So they allowed him to stand, um, be underneath the operating room and send the chi up through the floor, you know, send oh, it upwards yeah. to the operating room. <laughs> and what they found was 
fascinating. The doctors and nurses came out of a very long surgery where they normally would have been exhausted, and they were like, da 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 filled with energy. And then the anesthesiologist found that he used less anesthesia, and the and the patients recovered faster. So they gave him... Okay, the 70-year-old man, the way he and his wife were paid is they had a jar on their porch where people would put the money (laughs) that they could. Yes, and then he would have them all lined up in chairs in a hallway, and he would do, you know, like give them mass. Oh, oh, we're almost over. Mass chi and then individual. Mm. But then they gave him a $5 million grant. So, you know, it's like, yes. We're, we're getting there. So, yeah. uh, so Dr. Cassie, thank you, thank you, thank you for being my guest. And You're listeners, welcome. get to Chicago, Oak Brook for this conference, noetic.org slash conference 2015, um, and you will find your way. So thank you, yeah. thank you and so much for way, all the work you're doing. Yes. Yeah, and by the way, if you if you absolutely can't make it, then we will be doing some live streaming of the main session. So check in at noetic.org if you uh, can't make it for some reason. I know it's short notice. Um, there should be some live streaming opportunities to view the main sessions. Okay, perfect. Okay, well, thank you, thank you again for all that you do and, you know, all that the organization does. And just, you know, thank you for being my guest today. And we need to get the word out, everyone. So remember, virtual blog, this interview can be listened to over and over. So send your friends, family, and colleagues so that they can learn more and get them to the conference. So thank you so thank much. You. Have a beautiful day. You're welcome. Okay. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.